Hi, Rachel. Inspire, don't require. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Meadow, joined today by Chris Bugay. Hey, Chris. Hey, how's it going, Rachel? It's going good. It's sunny here, sunny Los Angeles. Sorry if my audio is a little bit uh, wonky. I'm in my car right now. And it's like 95 degrees. And just to make sure that you don't hear any airplanes or trucks or anything going by, I'm shut in here like a sauna. So this is what I do for this podcast, Rachel. Do you, exactly. Do you hear the dedication, listeners? Like he's in a, in a car that's 95 degrees right now, sweating, probably in like a suit because he's at work. <laughs> True. Yep, there it is. <laughs> so yeah, that's dedication if I've ever heard it. So let's get right into it. <laughs> Let's, let's, Chris. So we just started talking a little bit about um, something that I feel really strongly about, and I know you probably have a lot of thoughts too. And this always happens to us, Chris. We start talking before we actually hit the record button, and then we go, wait, wait, wait. We should just be recording right now. <laughs> so true. here we are. So I was just about to ask Chris his thoughts on students not being able to take their school iPads home for the summer um, that have their AAC systems on them. So being without an AAC system for the summer, because that's what some of my families experience. So my thoughts, I mean, you can probably guess my thoughts is that I'm going to lead with the idea that they should have their AAC system with them at all times, right? Summer at all times, right? I mean, you don't stop learning language and you don't stop modeling language on the last day of school, right? That students need it over the summer. But there are some extenuating circumstances. I don't know. It's, it's tricky. Well, I guess my question to you, Chris, because I obviously am in private practice and I don't work. I work with schools, but I don't work in schools. And it's always a school policy, right? It's always the school that's like, sorry, like we can't have any assistive technology go home with a student over the summer. And I'm wondering if there's any ways that we can utilize the IEP process to ensure that that does not happen. Right. I mean, I, I think it's an IEP team decision that if the student needs it to access a free, appropriate public education, or if it would make more sense to even write the device in as extended school year services uh, as an accommodation that they need for the summer. Uh, I think there's lots of options there where the IEP team can, or the IEP document itself can be used to ensure that, that the student has it over the summer. Yeah. And that's what I kind of have counseled some of my clients on um, but it's just like these school districts aren't budging because I think that they have other parents that are fine with just like not having the device for the summer. And, you know, it's just, it's really hard because all of the clients that I work with are obviously quite motivated to have those devices to learn, to practice over the summer. Um, I mean, it's just when you think about it, as far as, you know, a fundamental right to have access to communication for these children who AAC is their sole form of communication. I mean, it's a crime, really, to take it away for the summer and leads to, I'm sure, tons of frustration, behaviors. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, it, when you say that, it actually makes me think that AAC is probably not their sole form of communication. It's just their primary form, or we want it to be the primary form. They probably are communicating in other ways, maybe in ways we don't want them to communicate, you know, through behavior or, or something else or in a way that is not teaching them language, you know? So it just philosophically, um, and what we know from just how many times it takes to, to model you know, some of the research that's been done on aided language stimulation or partner augmented input, 
uh, or modeling to you know break it down to a very simple word um you need you it, it doesn't fit to take the device away right i, I don't know it just it, it, philosophically it doesn't work you use the word fundamental right right communication right and i think that's where we should keep our mindset at all times is what's the right thing to do right whatever the, the law says or whatever you're worried about what's the right thing to do and the right thing is to provide the student with the uh, opportunity to have access to whatever they need to learn language. I'm just playing devil's advocate here because I'm trying to think through the lens of an administrator at that IEP meeting and, and, and them saying, well, it's too much of a liability to have school property at home for the entire summer. Well, okay. So one, the IEP there again protects you because uh, assistive technology of really special education services are at no cost. So if the IEP team determines that it's necessary, then it doesn't matter. There is no liability, right? We're, we're saying that's what the student needs. Um, and it's at no cost to the, to the family. So the school district provide it, you know? Um, and now the other point that I bring up there, Rachel, is thinking about the statistics. So when someone brings that up, I really love the, uh, the person to, I mean, we make data-driven evidence-based decisions, right? So where's your evidence? Have you done this before? And people have absconded with the device. Have they stolen it and sold it on the black market of AAC devices? Like, what are you afraid of? That, that I mean, the, the parents, if you've done your diligence doing training and explaining what it's for, maybe they're not going to use it all at first. We've had that conversation uh, many times. That's one of my, my few reservations about sending it home over the summer is that, well, okay, maybe it won't get used. But still, I'd rather have it be there for the potential to be used. But still, my point is, Give them the chance. Don't worry about the the, the, the liability. Um, no one is trying to steal, or very, very few people are trying to steal communication devices over the summer. Or if they break, you know, that stuff happens. So don't worry about that. That's not the right thing to do. I also have had um, children who weren't able to take their device home at night. So the device had to stay at school, and it wasn't able to come home ever. Hmm. So thoughts on that, Chris? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, same, same thing, Rachel, right? I mean, I want the student to have it when they go home. Now, there are, like I said, uh, when we kicked off this conversation, I think there are a handful of caveats. Like, so a situation that comes to mind is when a student is first, I mean, brand new getting a device and you haven't really trained the parents yet and they don't, wouldn't really know what to do. And maybe it's a an AAC system that if you saw it, you wouldn't really know how to navigate it without some sort of training, you know? The Unity systems are often like that, you know, MinSpeak, where you look at it and you go, what is this? How does this work? And if someone shows it to you, then you're like, oh, okay, now I see it. So if you haven't done that, that sort of training yet, uh, if you haven't really talked about modeling, if the parents really don't know, I could see withholding the device going home just so you're not getting anyone a bad experience. Well, this thing is stupid. I'm not using this thing, you know? This doesn't make sense. The kid's not immediately talking, you know? That's not to say you wouldn't have a plan, right? Uh, okay, here's the here's when I'd like you to come in for training. Here are the dates, you know? You offer all of that stuff. There's some sort of plan so that eventually you can get the device to go home and everyone's well-supported. But just carte blanche, no, it should go home. That's why I say there's got to be some sort of thought that goes into it. I can't just, I lead with that, but it's not that way all the time. And, you know, kind of piggybacking off of that, how can we make sure that we support parents 
in the training like elements of a device before they ever take it home. And I feel like that's kind of where I see a huge need and not a lot going on um, from the school side, because I feel like it's hard to coordinate, right? It's hard to have parents come in to do a training. And I just think that that's such a huge piece in the puzzle. And oftentimes when I was working in the schools, before I had done private practice, it was just like, it was such a disconnect. And I just felt like I felt unsupported at school because I just like, was like feeling, I felt like, oh, I'm doing all this work, but nothing's happening at home. And so is this really going to generalize and carry over? And it was just evident in the IEP meetings that it wasn't generalizing and it wasn't being carried over. And I just, it's really, I feel like that's the biggest issue that we face as clinicians. Um, How can we get home and school collaborating and working together and doing the same things. So I just think that's a huge piece of the puzzle too. So I think one thing that immediately jumps to my mind that could help there is the selection process. So often the private practice is not involved in the selection process or the school is not, or the parent is not. One of those three parties is is either left out or sometimes two of them. And if you could bring everyone together during the selection process, well, now you're kind of embedding training and you're, you're coming to a consensus together and everyone gets on the same page. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult when the situation already exists and people are coming in together uh, and a selection has already been made. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I completely agree with that. I try to get everybody on board. I mean, the way that I do things in my practice is a little bit different. And I think I've talked about this before, but instead of doing a full assessment, oftentimes I do a consultation And so I do, it it sometimes happens, you know, in a two hour block, it sometimes happens over the course of a couple sessions, it kind of depends on the child and how they respond, but it always involves the parent. It's both a consultation and four video sessions. Families can use them whenever they want up to six months after they buy them. And it's me checking in with team members. It's me overlapping with an ABA session. It's me overlapping in SLP session. Um, But I just feel like, and we've talked about this before, the shift, the, the focus for me is less on the assessment piece and it's more on the implementation side. So it's more about, you know, here are strategies that you can use with any device, right? Here, I need to talk to you about core words. I need to talk to you about the importance of modeling. I need to talk to you about, you know, the importance of visual supports and learning, um, you know, outside of AAC. And these are all things that I touch on. And, you know, when I first started, I was like, you know, following a traditional model where I was providing a full assessment and doing three trials and, you know, writing a 20 page report and handing it over to the parent. And then I just felt like, you know, I don't have anybody telling me what I have to do here. And so it was such freedom realizing that, you know, I can focus on the things I want to focus on. I can bring the parent into the session. And as I'm doing the trialing, talk with parents and have, you know, visual support. I use visual supports during my consultations to teach about core words. And I feel like I'm almost giving a presentation sometimes. Uh, but I have kind of my spiel down and here's what I, we need to cover today. And parents are kind of taken aback sometimes. They're like, oh, like I can't just drop them off. I'm like, no, that's not the way this works. Like you are an active participant in this process. And it's been really great. I've had a lot of really great feedback and a lot of parents have said, I'm so happy we don't have to like have my son jump through all these hoops because they've already had assessments. And a lot of times, you know, these kids have had AAC assessments and they've said, 
child not ready, child not appropriate for high tech system, you know, all these things that are like nails on a chalkboard for me when I hear. And of course, like it's, that's not the case. That's not what I see in my practice. And I work with those children and they have almost immediate success if I'm finding something that's motivating. And that's the key, I think. And a lot of times, you know, we take an assessment report and we see that a child does X, Y, or Z. Well, were they motivated? That's literally the number one question for me, because if they weren't, then it doesn't mean anything. The whole report, you can just throw in the trash. (laughs) Maybe that's a little extreme, but I, I mean, if there's not motivation, then we can't get a clear picture of what a child's capable of. So let me see if I can sum it up. Point number one is that students should have their device. We should lead with students having their device all the time. That includes uh, at night or when they go home in the afternoon because language doesn't stop at school. And then over the summer, don't be afraid to, that, that someone's going to steal that, that piece of equipment. Even if you do have, even if someone does, it doesn't mean everyone's a bad person that's going to be stealing equipment. Three is to work together as a team to select. And if, you, uh, if you're already working with people who are already made a selection, then try and come together as a, as a team to talk about changes to implementation. Is that That's it. And that's where I think we can use, you know, telepractice and video, you know, check-ins and things like that. Because I, unfortunately, I can't be at all the places all the time, right? But a lot of what I do can be done through the interweb. (laughs) I can just be on a screen and see what's happening and coach communication partners and coach SLPs and troubleshoot problems that are coming up. And so I really think thinking outside the box is really important too. Rachel, just real quick, let me ask, uh, maybe this is a throwback to our productivity episodes, um, but what do you do, which app do you use or what tool do you use when you are doing video conferencing with with, uh, parents? I actually use Zoom, which we're using right now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I, it's funny you ask because I'm actually in the market for something different because what I would really like to see, and I think there's probably technology out there that can do this. I just haven't found it yet. Um, but I'm, what I really want to do is be able to watch videos back split screen together. So I would love for a communication partner to take a short video of implementation of AAC, right? Like here we are at snack time or here we are, you know, in the morning getting ready for school or, you know, whenever they're using the device, whenever we've talked about like what routine, what already established routine are you going to be embedding this practice into So we take the routine, parents videotape it, or teachers or SLPs videotape it, and then together we can watch the video back and we can coach through that experience. So that's what like I want to do next level because right now I don't have that capacity. Um, It's not as seamless. I can do it. And I can, of course, I, I review videos for clients. So clients, some of my clients that are remote, they'll send me videos of an ABA session or SLP session and I'll watch the video and I'll just actually use a loom, which was again, in our productivity hacked one. Um, I'll use a loom and I'll just talk through, you know, when we were doing the WH questions activity, you know, next time, you know, make sure you pause right after and give at least 10 seconds pause before you, you know, hop in and model on the device. Um, So things like that, I can coach in real time, but, but right now I'm just using zoom. But if anybody else knows anything out there that has the capacity to, for both parties to watch the video simultaneously, please email me. <laughs> I would love to know. 
Yes, this sounds like a call to action, uh, listeners. We need your help to find a video uh, app that allows for split screen. That is that is a good charge. So yeah, please put it in the Facebook group. I'd love to see what we come up with. Absolutely. So I'm really excited about today's interview. I interviewed Charlotte DiStefano from UCLA. She's doing really amazing research in the field of minimally verbal children with autism. And our conversation was awesome. Of course, we have the same belief systems as far as AAC is concerned. She's actually a special education teacher. And she talks about her experience and how she got into research. And we dig in and we talk all about language development in children with autism and strategies that practitioners can use. So I'm really, I'm really excited for, for the interview today. So without further ado, here's my interview with Charlotte DiStefano from UCLA. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Charlotte DiStefano. I'm really excited to have you here, Charlotte. This has been a long time coming. Yeah, I know. We've been trying to connect for a while. Yeah. So Charlotte, just introduce yourself briefly. Tell our audience who you are, what you do. I'm so excited because you have a lot of really amazing research that you're doing, and I can't wait to share this with all of our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm Charlotte. I I wear a couple different hats. Um, I'm a researcher at UCLA in the Center for Autism Research and Treatment. Um, I also am a clinical psychologist in our neurodevelopmental disabilities clinic at UCLA. Um, and in my previous life, I was a special education teacher. Um, so that's, that's where I started out. Um, I was a special ed teacher in New York and then in Los Angeles um, at public schools, for the most part, for kids with autism and related developmental disabilities. Um, and then my career kind of veered a little bit and I've ended up in the research world. So now um, I am still able to see families clinically um, in the clinic, which is fantastic and balance that with the research that I do. Yeah. So let's just kind of briefly touch on some of the research that you're doing. Um, I'm really excited because you are here in Los Angeles, which is how we connected and UCLA is doing some really cool research. Yeah, UCLA is a great place to be for autism research. Um, there's a lot going on there. So there, there's stuff that I am involved in as a collaborator. And then I'm just sort of starting out with my own independent research program. Um, I'm really interested in kids with autism and other neurodevelopmental disabilities who are having trouble with their expressive language development. So kids who remain minimally verbal or nonverbal as they get older. That's the population that I have always worked with, um, it's who I worked with as a teacher, it's who I work with clinically, um, and it's who I'm interested in trying to understand more about. Um, so my own research is about trying to understand language development in that population, understand why they're having trouble with language and what we can do to improve it. Um, and then in general at UCLA, we have, there are two sort of big um, parts of our research program that I'm involved in. We have um, a big biomarkers research program, um, which is trying to understand more about genetics and brain markers in autism. Um, and I worked, I work with Dr. Shafali Jeste, um, who does a lot of that, and, and Dr. Daniel Geshwin. Um, and then we have a lot of intervention research that happens at UCLA as well. Um, Dr. Connie Cassery is a big name in autism intervention research. That's who I did my PhD with and still work with her on some of her studies doing the JASPER intervention, which I know we'll talk a little more about. 
Yeah. And I, I definitely know a lot of those names and for the research side of things, it's of course important to both address, you know, what's going on from a diagnosis standpoint, how can we find, you know, markers that allow us to diagnose earlier. And then of course the intervention side, which is what I'm super passionate about because I'm a clinician, right? And I practice. And so I want to know, you know, what is, re- what is the research telling us as far as, you know, informing our practice and how we can practice better, especially with minimally verbal children. Um, that is exactly what I specialize in, which is why, you know, I have an AAC podcast <laughs> because I do a lot of work with AAC with kids who are minimally verbal. I mean, we can kind of get into the weeds a little bit about, you know, clinical stuff. But um, as far as the research side, what, what are some, you know, findings both on the biomarker side with the collaborative research, it sounds like you're doing and also the intervention, like what are some of the, the takeaways that you're, you're starting to learn about autism? Um, I think on both sides, researchers are starting to understand more and more how heterogeneous kids with autism are, which I mean, sounds obvious to say for all of us who work with this population, but it's really nice to see research start to really address that and document that, um, you know, kids are really variable in terms of how they respond to treatment, who makes, who makes progress with what types of treatment. Um, we're not great so far at being able to predict who is going to respond, how they're going to respond. And that's something that we're trying really hard to understand. Um, because if we have a better sense of what treatment is a good fit for what child and what type of progress they're going to make, then we can really tailor that from the beginning and not spend so much time waiting to see how a child is going to respond to things. Um, and then the same thing on the biomarkers side. Um, you know, 20 years ago, people thought that they were going to discover the gene for autism. And now we have hundreds and hundreds of genes that seem to be involved. Um, we're starting to understand more and more that there are so many different ways that autism might develop different genetic causes, different environmental factors, um, and we're being able to measure more and more about that variability and how that might relate to a child's developmental trajectory, um, what skills they're going to be able to gain. So, um, you know, we're a long way from having any firm answers to anything, of course, but I think understanding that variability is a really important step that we're making right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I completely agree. Um, I think that it's at some level, it's like, okay, great. Like we are seeing the same types of things, you know, with these kids, but it is so interesting how the treatment is so individualized. It's such a art, right? Like we can have all the science in the world to tell us what to do, but the art of a good clinician is really just figuring out a child's individual motivations, especially when we're thinking about communication. Um, Also how children learn so differently. You know, I know a lot of the kids that I work with are very visual learners. So that's why AAC is so beneficial to them. Um, A lot of times those auditory channels are not as strong as their visual channels. And so, um, you know, I know this about a lot of the kids that I work with, but it's so nuanced, right? It's so many different factors coming into play. And so I think a lot of it is just really getting to know a child and what they're excited about. And then, you know, that's the foundation for which you can build on top of. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit um, about Jasper, because I was telling you before we hopped on, I'm really interested in Jasper. It's very well known in Los Angeles, but maybe not so much 
you know, in other places. Um, and I know that's, uh, not exactly, you know, your wheelhouse, but you know of it and you can kind of speak just to a general overview. Um, but I did want our listeners to hear about it because we haven't actually talked about it on the podcast yet. Definitely. Um, so JASPER stands for Joint Attention, Symbolic Play, Engagement, and Regulation. Um, and it is an intervention program developed by Dr. Connie Casary at UCLA. So that's why we know more about it in LA than in other places. Um, she's working really, really hard on uh, disseminating and getting JASPER out there more into the world. Um, there is going to be a JASPER manual that is going to be published soon. It's, it's really, really close. Um, so that's really exciting. Jasper is going to be more available to people in the future. Um, right now, you can only access Jasper um, either we do a small number of cases in the clinic at UCLA. Um, so I will see families and do short-term Jasper treatment with them. Um, and then she, uh, Connie has a number of research studies um, that families can enroll in and be part of Jasper that way. Um, but hopefully in the future, the manual is going to be out there and there are going to be more providers in the world who are doing JASPER. Um, it's a cool intervention. It falls into the category of naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions and DBI, um, which is the way a lot of intervention programs are moving, which is going more, taking that ABA background uh, and ABA structure and moving into um, a naturalistic developmental interpretation um, of those same behavioral principles. So it does fall under the behavior therapy umbrella, um, but it is designed to maximize the child's natural interests um, and use developmentally appropriate play-based sessions to build up the child's ability to engage with another person, uh, develop their play skills, uh, and join attention, and then layer in gestures and language in that context um, to build up their skills. Yeah, and it's um, it's interesting because I I work obviously with a lot of children with autism and I feel like that joint attention piece is such a big one that, you know, we can focus on language all day long, but if we don't have a child who has that fundamental understanding of joint attention, which so many of my kids, even, you know, kids who are eight, nine, 10 years old, they don't have joint attention skills. Um, and so I think that that's one of the huge, you know, benefits of a program like this is it kind of it kind of sets the foundation, right? It, it sets the, these are things that we know from, you know, language develop, typical language development are really, really important. And I don't think that we, I don't think that, you know, a lot of clinicians, when they, when they see, you know, a seven-year-old, I don't know that they automatically go to joint attention, right? It's because like, we're like, okay, seven, like he's saying sentences, you know, we can work on, you know, X, Y, or Z. Now, like someone who's used to working in early intervention, who's birth to three, of course, they're working on joint attention. Um, but I think it's something that's oftentimes skipped over and not really thought about by clinicians um, for those older children with autism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that makes Jasper unique, and in my opinion, really effective for the minimally verbal kids, that instead of focusing on language itself, our goal is that the child develops more spoken language. But instead of focusing on the spoken language specifically, we focus on pre-linguistic skills and the joint attention and joint engagement as the context for learning language. Because you can target language all day long, 
Um, but if the child is not able to engage with you and learn from the context, you're going to have a really hard time moving forward. Um, and so instead, we focus on what we think are the skills that underlie language development. And by improving those, we then get an improvement in spoken language skills. Right. And if you have the attention piece, right, kids are more open to receiving language and, and learning it, you know, the same way all kids learn language. So I think that opening up those pathways is something that the Jasper program really does. Yeah, and that's that's really the goal. I think that's why Jasper appeals to a lot of people. Um, you know, parents report really high levels of satisfaction with the Jasper intervention. I think because it feels like uh, an appropriate natural context for learning, um, and so you know, we get really positive feedback from parents and from other professionals who come to the trainings. Um, so you know, it it can be a difficult intervention to become really expert in. Um, I think that's going to be one of, not a drawback, but one of the challenges that is going to, that we're going to face once this Jasper manual comes out and it's really disseminated out into the community. You know, it's relatively easy to learn to do discrete trial style ABA. Um, yes. Pretty easy to train therapists to do that. Something like Jasper, um, which, you know, has a lot of commonalities with things like Early Start Denver model. Um, or pivotal response therapy, it's a little harder to learn as an interventionist how to do a really good Jasper session. Something we're going to have to work on for sure. Yeah. And it feels like because it's, it's not automatic, right? Like there's no formula, like there's formulas for discrete trial training and rules. Right. And so I feel like that makes it easier to learn learn the strategies, but then you have to be pretty creative and flexible about implementing them um, and adapting to the situation and the child. And I think on one hand, that's why it's so effective and powerful. Um, and on the other hand, makes it a little bit of a steeper learning curve. Exactly. And I think I see a lot of clinicians who are very rigid, right? They're not flexible. Um, they have done things a certain way and they've had a certain outcome and they expect that outcome to be the same for every child that they work with. And if it's not working, then it's the child, right? And so I, I can definitely see how there's some pushback and, you know, we, it's all, it's hard, right. To kind of let go of control sometimes, you know, let go of what you know and really explore different ways that maybe you haven't tried before. Um, and I think that that's what's nice about a more child-directed approach to treatment is, you know, you really do have to pay attention and you have to be open because yeah. if you just do the same thing you've always done in the same way, like it just won't work. Sometimes for some kids, they're just like, I'm not into this, I'm over it. And so that's when you start to see the behaviors and all these things. And it's just, it's, it's hard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as a clinician, the more styles of intervention and strategies that I know, the more flexible I can be with meeting the needs of every child um, in all these different contexts. So, you know, I think um, I've learned a lot of different intervention styles and teaching styles over the years and the different roles that I've been in. They all have their pros and cons. I don't think one of them is necessarily always better than the others. I think the most important thing for us as clinicians to do is to learn as much as we can so that we can pull out of our bag of tricks whatever we think is going to be the best fit for that child in the moment. Um, Jasper is great for building rapport, building engagement, developing social communication skills, 
It's not the teaching method I would use for toilet training. You know, if I'm working with a family and helping them with toilet training, we're going to be using a much more discreet ABA style uh, of therapy. And so, you know, it's not that I'm promoting one style of therapy over another, um, but the more that we learn all of these different things, just, you know, the more resources we're going to have for each kid that we encounter. No, absolutely. Um, So for clinicians who are interested in learning more, does Jasper host trainings? They do actually. So, um, so again, Connie Cassery is the, um, the researcher who developed Jasper. She's at UCLA in the school of education and the psychiatry department. And yeah, if you just Google her, um, her website is caseryLab.org. I want to say, I'll look that up when we get back to it. Um, then you can see tons of information about Jasper and they do host trainings, um, periodically. And hopefully those are going to be increasing over time. Amazing. And we can definitely link to those in the show notes for those of you who are listening and are like, yes, sign me up. I want to learn. Um, perfect. So now I really want to like get into the clinical side, Charlotte, because I feel like I just want to learn from you and your experience. And so let's talk a little bit about, you know, the children that you work with and the interventions that you're doing. And, you know, specifically when it comes to language, like what are you seeing in your clinic and how are you, you know, helping kids with autism learn how to communicate? Yeah. So clinically, I see kids with autism and kids with other um, related neurogenetic conditions. Um, So we also have a genetics clinic that I work in at UCLA. Um, We see a lot of kids. We specialize in particular um, in kids who have duplication 15Q syndrome. We're one of the national Duke 15 clinics. So we see a lot of those kiddos. Um, And just kids with a variety of, you know, essentially complex neurodevelopmental needs. Um, and so I, uh, because of the, the nature of our clinic and how I see families, I don't get to do a lot of ongoing therapy with families. What I do more often is I see families for a few sessions for really consultations to try to strategize about where their child is at, what therapies they've done so far, what's working, what's not working, um, and what guidance I can give them for kind of where to go next. I see a lot of families in those sort of middle childhood years. So the kiddo is seven, eight, nine years old, not making a ton of progress, not communicating very much, and families start to feel scared and stuck and wondering what they should be doing differently, what they should be doing instead. Um, and so that's that's the context in which I tend to see families a lot, which is, it's it's great because I get to, to use my different backgrounds and, and different expertise to try to strategize about, you know, what can we do in these situations to move these kids forward? Um, And a lot of what I end up talking to families about is how they can more effectively use an AAC device, even if the professionals in the child's life are not necessarily experts in AAC, um, or maybe even if they, for example, requested an eval from the school district and the school district has said, no, we don't think they're ready for an AAC device. And I try to help families problem solve around that and think about what they can do on their own at home to try to start building up these skills. 
Uh, I do the same thing, Charlotte. <laughs> I can relate to everything you're saying. Um, you know, because we, I really want to maximize the time that I have with families. And I have so many families calling me just because I feel like there's a huge need. Parents see potential in their child to access, you know, communication in an easier way. And they don't have, you know, necessarily the support of the school district or the clinicians that are working with them don't really know a lot about AAC. And so what I do is I like kind of try to teach as much as I can in a short amount of time and really try to prioritize um, and give give families a roadmap. You know, I think oftentimes we're just so focused on like the child today in this session, this is what I'm seeing, this is what needs to happen next. But like, what does that look like in a year, two years, three years, 10 years, right? And so like really saying like, okay, if the end game is this, which for me, it's always, you know, giving kids access to literacy and typing if they're nonverbal, um, you know, and, or otherwise. And, you know, how can we work backwards from that? You know, and a lot of it starts with, you know, simple shifts in, you know, the kinds of, you know, intervention that we're doing from a speech and language standpoint. Um, you know, and then of course, all the other things that go with AAC about, you know, the device and modeling and things yeah. like that. So I can relate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I hate the idea that there are prerequisite skills for using an AAC device. Um, it, it just, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I should say full disclosure to all the people who are listening to this. I am not a speech and language pathologist. Um, because I have ended up specializing in minimally verbal kids and communication, I overlap a lot with what speech and language pathologists do, but I understand that I am coming from a little bit of a different perspective. Um, and I make sure families know that my perspective is, you know, as a, a psychologist with a special education teacher's background, um, you know, and so that's how I'm approaching these things. Um, but the idea that there would be prerequisite skills for learning something new is just kind of crazy to me. We don't expect babies to have prerequisite skills before we expose them to language. So I don't understand why we would expect a child to have any sort of prerequisite skills before we expose them to a speech output device. Um, and so what I really try to do in my appointments with families is figure out, you know, what where is their child at developmentally? Where, you know, where are their skills in a variety of areas that are, of course, related to communication, related to using a speech output device? Um, you know, we do need to know what is their visual discrimination like? Are they seeing the difference between symbols? Are they seeing the difference between pictures? Um, you know, those are, I think of them as related skills, but not prerequisite skills. Um, and then if we can get a really good sense of where the child is at in all of those different domains, then we can introduce a device in a way that matches with their abilities and get it up and running. Um, I think what happens a lot of times is parents, you know, they, they're frustrated because they're not getting help from the people they're asking for help from. And so they try to do it themselves. They get an iPad, they download something like Proloquo. They've got the standard templates, they hand it to the child, and then of course it's not working because it's too complicated. Um, and what we often need to do is really, really pare it down and make it accessible to the child, um, give the parents some strategies to introduce it in a meaningful way, and then before you know it, they start building up skills and, and we can get to those more complex methods. I can't tell you how many families I've talked to or parents I've talked to on the phone, they first call me. 
And, you know, we're talking about what's going on and language and how they're communicating. And I ask about AAC, of course. Mm -hmm. And, oh, well, we tried that like a year or two ago. And it's just like, he didn't like it. He didn't use it. It didn't work. And I'm like, okay, like I need, I need to know, like, how was it set up? Like, what were we using to, you know, facilitate communication and inspire communication out of kids? Like, oftentimes, like there's just small shifts that you can make and you hit one, you hit the nail on the head with one of them, which is let's not just like upload a template and like throw it like in a child's lap and be like, let's learn, let's learn how to access 4,000 words right now. You know, I think that there's a a way that you can introduce certain vocabulary in a very strategic way Mm -hmm. that makes, you know, not only the child feel, you know, like they can access the the language, but also the adults, right? The adults, if they're overwhelmed, they're not going to use the device. And so I think there's a lot, a lot of these things that we kind of take for granted. People who work with AAC and know it, like we kind of do these things naturally, but um, if you don't have the guidance of a professional that kind of knows what to do and has experience with lots of kids using these systems, you know, it's it can be really daunting and overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I tell almost every family, something we end up talking about is, um, you know, parents come in often with this idea that more is better, that if they're going to start using an AAC device, they need to be using it all day, every day in order for their child to have success. And that obviously for a parent is an incredibly overwhelming task. Um, And what I advise parents to do instead is start really small. Start with one specific consistent situation where you can think of a good way to use the AAC device. Just as an example, mealtime is often an easy thing to think about. It's organized, everyone's sitting there, you know what food is gonna be served, you can get the device set up ahead of time and just use it consistently in that one situation where it's easy for you and see how that goes. Um, before you worry about trying to get it up and running all day, every day, um, You know, it's better to have consistent high quality practice during one part of the day than be using it ineffectively all day long every day. Could not agree more. I always give the example of the gym, right? Like, wouldn't it be great if we could all go work out for two hours every day, seven days a week, but that's not realistic, right? And what happens is people start with these huge expectations. Like I'm going to go every single day. I'm going to have a six pack in two months, you know, and then they, they slip up. They of course can't meet the high expectation. And then I feel like what we do is we do black or white thinking. It's like all or nothing. And it's like, well, I didn't use the device at all. So I might as well just like not use it, not use it at all. You know, I like couldn't do it the way I wanted to do it. So I I shouldn't use it at all. And like, you know, I, I couldn't stick to the diet today. So like I ate an entire bag of Oreos. So who cares? You know what I mean? Like, it's just like we do this all or nothing thinking. And so I completely agree. We know when we're thinking about habits and how they form and how they form effectively, Mm-hmm. It starts small. Start with something that's small and, and realistic as far as, you know, something that you can actually do. And of course, we know the research shows routines-based intervention is the strongest and best. So, you know, absolutely finding something that's already happening that we can just weave the communication and the device into that already existing routine. Right, exactly. And then the child is going to experience some success. The parent is going to experience success. Everyone's going to feel better about it. And then it becomes much less daunting to figure out, okay, what's the next step? Where can we add this in now? Yep. I do the same thing with my clients. And 
There's some, there's some, um, some tricks that I use. For example, uh, one of the ones that I do is I recommend parents buying stands and putting them up in places throughout the house. So if there's a stand on the kitchen table, you're automatically going to see that stand and be like, Oh, you know, it's dinner time. Like we need the device. Where's the device? You know, and things like that. You can also do low tech versions of the device where you print out a a screenshot of the homepage and laminate it and put it all over to kind of remind you to model language and use language. Um, But yeah, things like that. It's just, you have to start integrating it slowly. And then eventually it just becomes second nature and you're not even thinking about it. And then you, that's when you're able to start expanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Love it. Um, this prerequisite stuff is crazy to me. Get policy to change. Exactly. Exactly. The number of assistive technology evals that I read that just make me want to rip my hair out. I know. I know. Kids use the device before they've ever seen a device. Exactly. I know. And like kids learn how to use devices by actually starting to try to use devices. Like you have to actually give them one before they can learn. Right. There has to like be one in the classroom. Absolutely. As a special ed teacher comes in, I feel like, you know, it's all well and good for this to be the domain of speech and language pathologists. And they have really important expertise, but the teacher spends a lot more time with the child than the SLP does. So why isn't the teacher also using an AAC device in their classroom all day, every day? If you have a classroom full of minimally verbal kids, that should be a basic part of the curriculum in the classroom. I could not agree more. And why are, you know, teachers, especially special education teachers, not getting adequate training in AAC? You know, that's a whole nother conversation. I know it, when I was a special ed teacher, it was just, it was something that I became really interested in because all of the kids in my class were minimally verbal or nonverbal and a handful of them had devices. Um, many of them did not. And I made a deal with the SLP who I was good friends with that she just agreed to leave all the devices in my classroom instead of in her office. Um, and I incorporated them into all the activities that we did all day because that helped the kids who were supposed to be using the devices and also helped the kids who hadn't been exposed to them yet. Um, yeah. But it had to be something I kind of sought out. It wasn't a, a default part of being a special ed teacher. So I'm really curious, given your background in special education as a teacher, what are some ways that can help facilitate communication and collaboration between the SLP and the teacher? Are there any strategies that you used, you know, to collaborate with your SLP? Like, cause I feel like that's part of the problem, right? Is that, you know, sometimes teachers are like, oh, it's time for speech. Like take them out, you know, like they're not necessarily open to having that, that collaboration. So, you know, what advice would you give to clinicians who are really trying to foster that relationship, but it's just not working? I think that, um, I will say in defense of all special ed teachers everywhere, special ed teachers have so much to do and so many priorities. And there are so many things happening in the classroom at any given moment. And it can be really difficult when you're a special ed teacher to feel like people are asking you to focus on something that simply can't have your full attention. Um, And I think that can be one of the challenges with therapists trying to collaborate with teachers because therapists are thinking about one child's needs or a couple of kids' needs. um, And sometimes the feedback that the therapist is giving to the teacher just isn't practical in the context of the whole classroom and everything that's going on. 
Um, so the, the therapists that were the most wonderful when I was a teacher spent a lot of time in my classroom and just understood the ins and outs of what was happening. Um, you know, if I'm trying to do a shared book reading with my 12 students and six A's, you know, what can we do in that context with everything that's going on to address kids' communication and speech goals? Um, and therapists who were able to really understand that context and help me problem solve in that space were really, really helpful. Um, therapists who focused just on an individual's child's needs and said things like, you know, uh, it's really important that Rochelle get more chances to practice words that start with S. Like, okay, well, you know, I'm doing a lot of things during the day. I'm not sure that one's going to happen. Exactly. Instead of saying something like that, being like, what's your lesson plan for next week? You know, I'll look at the book and I'll pick out three words that you can ask her to say during shared reading. Exactly. That's, that's the move. Right. And of course, a therapist has a million things to think about too. On the flip side, they've got a huge caseload and, you know, way more kids and can't spend a ton of time, you know, reading through my lesson plans and everything, but figuring out a place where we can meet in the middle, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think is, is really helpful. And just in general, for people to understand that there's so much more happening in the classroom than what you might think of. Um, that a, a teacher is doing, you know, there's so much just directing traffic and where are all the aides and who's taking their lunch break when and who's going to cover this kiddo when the aide goes on lunch and so-and-so needs to go to the nurse's office. And so now one of the aides is out of the room, which means you don't have an aide to help with that kid who needs to go to the bathroom. It's easy to overlook all that stuff that's happening. But then for the special ed teacher, that can be basically all that happens during the day. And they mm-hmm. never get a chance to sit down and think about, you know, did Rochelle get a chance to practice her three words? Yep. Yeah, I think um, the therapists who, in my experience, have been the most effective are the ones who really understand that broader context and really want to join in and think about it in that way. Completely agree. And that's really good advice is just like spending time in the classroom, right? Like we don't know until we actually take the time to see, right? Yeah. And, you know, I've been in those classrooms. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like, it feels like organized chaos sometimes. I'm like, wow, I have such admiration for teachers because... On a good day, sometimes it's disorganized chaos. Exactly. Sometimes it's just chaos. (laughs) No, but I completely agree. And I think that the best thing you can do is just like go into the room and be helpful, right? That's the other thing that I feel like is really important. In the beginning of the year, it's like, okay, like, yeah, we have all these goals to hit and these IEPs to follow and all the things, right? But just like, what do you need help with right now? You know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be speech and language related, just like building a good rapport with people that you're working with, um, you know, showing that I'm the person that, that can, you can rely on to help you when, you know, the aid's out of the room, I can stay, you know, for an extra 10 minutes until he comes back. And I think those things really make a big difference. And then, you know, when as a therapist, you're asking for, you know, a certain, you know, whatever it is that you need for one of your students, um, it's just, it's a, it's a give and take, right? It's like, okay, like she, yes, she's a good person. She helped me. Like, you know, I would love to help her with this specific thing. It's just like being a good human being, you know, just be good human beings. <laughs> be a good neighbor. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So before we hop off, and thank you so much, Charlotte, for coming on. I'm so excited to have you and listen to all of your wonderful strategies and research that you're doing. Um, But I just wanted to talk a little bit about 
how language development is different for children with autism than it is, you know, kids who are just, you know, language delayed. Um, can you speak to a little bit about the differences and then how, from an intervention standpoint, it really changes the way that we teach language and we teach um, kids how to communicate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we have both things going on in autism, um, which I think it's important for people to realize. So kids with autism do tend to be delayed in the onset of language. Um, this, this statistic is a little bit out of date. I'm not sure that anyone has updated it recently, but the last I heard, the average age of first words in autism was about 43 months, mm. uh, which is you know substantially later than in typical development, we would expect age of first words to be about 12 months. Um, so, you know, kids with autism on the whole, not every child, of course, this is a, you know, a large average, but on the whole, kids with autism start talking later than their typically developing peers. Um, and that doesn't mean that they won't continue on to have fluent language later. Um, but then we know that about 30% of kids with autism do not develop flexible fluent language um, and are what we would call minimally verbal or some are nonverbal later in childhood. And language development in those kids, I find as a, as a researcher, I find that really fascinating. So in addition to a delay in the onset of language, we know that about a quarter to a third of kids with autism never really get to the point where they're using flexible, fluent language. So kids who remain minimally verbal or nonverbal. Um, and those kids are not just following a, a typical language development trajectory, but slower. They're really, their language is doing something different. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of research, people are really starting to, again, understand the variability, understand that these kids, you know, people used to refer to this population as just low functioning autism, like that just explained everything. Um, and we're, you know, certainly understanding more and more that that's not the case. Um, and that's why I use the term minimally verbal and why many other people are now as well. Because um, these kids can have a lot of other really great skills and are just not developing expressive language the way that we would expect them to. Um, so for just, for example, in typical development, usually by the time kids have a vocabulary of about 50 words, they start putting words together on their own, just flexibly putting those words together. But kids with autism can have a vocabulary of hundreds of words and still not be putting them together on their own. So that's not, uh, you know, just a slow, regular language development trajectory. That's really something different that's happening um, that we need to be paying attention to if we want to move them along and, and improve their language. Um, you know, usually around the time that kids are starting to put words together, they're also starting to use and understand pronouns. Um, and our kids really, really struggle with that, even when they're far past that point in terms of language milestones. Um, so those are just a couple of examples of ways in which our kiddos seem to be on their own language development trajectory that's not the same as typical development. Um, and a lot of our interventions are based on typical developmental expectations. You know, what order skills happen in and what you need before you move on to the next skill. 
Um, and since our kids are not necessarily going in that order, um, I think we need to be a little flexible and creative with the ways that we intervene on language and understand that they're not necessarily going to follow the expectations that uh, make sense to us. Absolutely. And that is exactly what I see with my kids. I mean, especially with, with nouns, kids with autism, they're like, they have sometimes vocabularies of nouns. Like they got 4,000 nouns. I like was working with a kid the other day and he was, um, it was a dump truck. It was like a dump truck. And he's like, that's a front end loader. And I was like, only you would know that's a front end loader. Um, but that's a perfect example of like, this kid knows every single noun there is, but when it comes to other parts of speech, verbs, prepositions, adjectives, pronouns, all of these other parts of speech, which are the glue that help us put sentences together, right? Like we need those. We can't make sentences with only nouns. Um, you know, that's where, that's where I see the lacking. And, you know, it's a lot, I think it has a lot to do with abstract language concepts, right? Like the more abstract a word is, the harder it is for, you know, an individual with autism to really understand it. Absolutely. A dump truck is super straightforward. You can see a dump truck in real life. You can see a picture of a dump truck. You can watch a dump truck on TV. You know what a dump truck is. But what does the word to mean? Yep. You know, how do you represent that? Yep. Uh, it's, it's really, really a challenge for our kids. Um, and I think it's easy to overlook that um, if we don't sort of think creatively about how their language is developing and where the holes are. And I think that that's where AAC comes in because we can now with icons or photos even, um, you know, we can attach some type of visual representation for these abstract language concepts and we're able to start teaching them. And I feel like it solidifies for kids with autism more. I mean, I do AAC stuff for kids who say, you know, put tons of words into sentences, not spontaneously, they're all scripted. Um, You know, so they're not using a lot of autonomous communication and and spontaneous communication, Um, but they're very verbal, right? Um, Which is another myth that AAC is only for kids who can't say words, right? Like I have so many kids that I work with who can say any word. Um, They're just not using language functionally. And so I think that the AAC piece is so important because it can help teach those abstract language concepts that we know kids need in order to start building sentences. Yeah. But I think on the other hand, we have to recognize that that is uniquely difficult for a lot of our kids and not get discouraged when it doesn't happen quickly. Yes. Um, you know, it, it's, we can put all of the core words we want onto an AAC device and hand it to a kiddo. It doesn't mean that they're going to start making sense to that kid right now. Um, you know, we often have to start with, you know, some familiar nouns and things to anchor their language and then add in those more, you know, flexible, diverse parts of speech. Um, And it can take a long time. I'm sure you have had the same experience. It can take a really long time for that to start making sense to our kids. Yep. Absolutely. I think that the, the best way to get buy-in for an AAC device is for kids with autism is using concrete nouns, um, their favorite things, their favorite foods, you know, their favorite places, all of those things that are very concrete. And then, then once, you know, a child is going to the device independently initiating all of these things that we want to see, you know, from an AAC standpoint, then we can start introducing exposure to these core words. And um, yeah, like you said, they take a long time to learn sometimes. I mean, I've worked with kids and, you know, for three years, 
on the same core words. And now they're finally starting to use them. And I'm like, wow, like this took a second. This took a long time for them to learn. But it's just, it just goes to show that, you know, it's important to keep, keep modeling that language. Um, you know, even if it doesn't feel like it's working, eventually it does click enough motivating experiences with a, a word, um, you know, and it's and enough exposure to it that is the recipe for a child learning how to use a word. Um, and so it just, it takes, it takes a lot of exposure sometimes to get that. Yeah, definitely. Now, if the child loves requesting to go to target, you know, and they'll push the button and they'll say target, you know, and then the parent can say back every time, let's go to target and push those buttons on the device. And mm -hmm. that it's not going to happen overnight, but it's, eventually going to get in there and the child's going to realize that they can connect words in that way. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. That's another strategy that I use. Um, you know, when I'm kind of trying to make the shift from, okay, you have all, you have a, so many nouns on this device, right? And then I start, we have to start framing the way that we ask the question. So instead of saying, you know, do you want crackers? I'll say, do you want to eat or do you want to play right now? Which one do you want to eat or do you want to play while I'm holding crackers and, you know, maybe a toy and then, you know, start to reframe and really focus on those core words because inevitably, you know, once kid learns like food goes with eat, toys go with play, um, then it, it's a two word phrase because they'll oftentimes then they're so, you know, good with the noun, but once they start thinking through that more abstract concept, like eat or play or go, um, then you can start, you know, seeing those, those words combine into sentences. Exactly. Perfect. So Charlotte, before you leave, I always ask everybody that comes on the show, if you had a billboard that every SLP could see, what would it say? Um, we have mostly speech language pathologists that listen to this podcast, although we have a lot of parents and teachers and a lot of other people who are interested in AAC too. Uh, but if you had a billboard, what would it say? <laughs> it's such a good question. And I wish I had a really clever answer. Um, it would say something like, would say something like assume competence. Assume our kids have stuff in there that one day is going to come out. Um, you know, they're not just who they are today. Just like the rest of us, they're going to grow and change and learn over time. Um, you know, no one stops learning just because they hit 10 years old. You know, so a child who is still not showing us great communication at age 10 is still going to grow and learn and change over time. Um, and the more opportunities we give them, the more they're going to learn and change. I think sometimes we fall into a trap where we feel like, you know, because the child has such a hard time, we don't put them in situations where they need to do a lot. Um, we do a lot of facilitating for them. But then because we're removing those opportunities, they don't get the chance to develop those skills. Um, Whereas the kids who I see make fantastic progress over time, even if they never learn to use spoken language, they learn other forms of communication. Um, and a lot of time, it really just seems to be because the people in their lives kept giving them opportunities to try things and to be involved and to have a voice. And, you know, they grow and develop and, and learn new skills. I love it. Yes. Yes. I could not agree more. I just feel like, especially as speech language pathologists, we are kind of, we're kind of the gatekeepers, right? Dana Nieder, she's a, um, she's a parent to a child who uses AAC, but she's also becoming a speech language pathologist. We had her on the podcast. She's fantastic. 
she has an amazing blog article where she talks about, um, you know, the gatekeepers. And we really are, if we decide like, no, this child, you know, isn't ready for a high tech system, you know, we've just prevented a child from having an opportunity to access, you know, robust language. Um, and so I couldn't agree more as far as just assuming that, you know, with the right instruction and time, every child is capable of doing amazing things. Um, I think that's such an important thing. It has to be a fundamental belief if you're a therapist working with, you know, children with special needs, because otherwise, I mean, it's like we've given up before you even tried, right? Exactly. And we don't know what these kids are going to be capable of, you know? Like I said, everyone is capable of growing and changing and learning, and we don't know what the upper limit is for any given kid. Might as well keep trying. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Charlotte, for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy research schedule uh, to talk with me and our listeners. Um, Where can people find you if they want to follow your work or read your research? Yeah. So um, if people want to see me in person, I see patients at UCLA in the Child and Adult Neurodevelopmental Clinic, the CAN Clinic. Um, And then as a researcher, I'm in the Center for Autism Research and Treatment at UCLA. And so you can Google us um, and I'll give you, I'll send you the website so you can put that up with the podcast. Perfect. Yeah. We'll link it in the show notes. Um, Again, Charlotte, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your insight and um, I'm just so thankful that we were able to coordinate this. Yeah, me too. Thank you for having me. Of course. So for Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Madel. Thank you guys so much for listening and we will talk to you guys next week. for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast, and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.